Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman. And today I am quite excited to have with me Dr. Regina Lark. And in 2008, Dr. Lark founded A Clear Path, Professional Organizing and Productivity. Regina is a featured speaker and educator on issues ranging from productivity, hoarding, and women's leadership. And last year, she published her third book, Emotional Labor, Why a Woman's Work is Never Done and What to Do About It. And that's pretty much the topic that we're going to focus on today. She is also a certified professional organizer. She's a specialist in boomer and senior downsizing, residential organizing, and life transitions. She has an additional certification in chronic disorganization. I could use some help there. (laughs) She works with clients who are challenged by ADHD and other brain-based conditions. And she earned her PhD in history from USC. We won't hold that against her, Cal fans. (laughs) (laughs) And she wrote her dissertation on interracial marriages between Japanese women and American GIs after World War II. Regina, welcome. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me to join you today. My pleasure. So tell me, how did you get involved in what you're doing now, women's studies and this sort of, uh, it almost seems to me like OCD with the hoarding and productivity and organization. Um, Okay. So first I do have to say the term evolved caveman seems like an oxymoron. So I've also been looking forward to talking with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I had a guest a while back say he, he misspoke and he said the evolving caveman. And I was like, oh my God, like I just missed it because I think that's more accurate, right? That I and we are in the process of evolving. I don't think that ever is complete. Well, I'm, I, 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 because you don't live in a cave, I'm assuming, I'm not quite sure if, anyway, so that's a whole, I'll have you on my podcast. <laughs> okay, excellent. Okay, okay. <laughs> so my, my, uh, my, my career project, projection, trajectory, uh, I had um, spent most of my adult life in higher education in pursuit of my doctorate. And then in, uh, and so in, in graduate school, all the work I did had was my focus was on women, women's history. I was an adjunct professor of history and women's studies all over Southern California. And in the summer of 08, two things happened. One, I went to Jerusalem to visit a very, very good friend of mine. And while I was there, I called her up. She was at work at Hebrew University. And I gave her a call. I said, Nadra, I don't want to be a tourist today. How about if I do your kitchen? And she's like, Habibdi, what does that mean? I said, Nadra, your girls are in their 30s. You got sippy cups in the cupboard. Just let me do what I did. (laughs) And so I did what I do. And it was a good result. And uh, I came back to my desk at UCLA. I was um, working at Extension. I was in adult learning. I had a big job, big portfolio. But my supervisor was a textbook bully. And it turns out I'm a textbook whistleblower. And so for, Mm. for a couple of years during my tenure there, I was in HR a lot. So now I have, I come back from Jerusalem. I had organized Nadra's Kitchen. And a week after I returned to my desk, I learned that my unit was being dismantled and my position eliminated. 
It's like, okay, the goddess of jobs had just done for me what I could not do for myself. And two months into my layoff, it's the summer of 08. The recession was just raining down upon us in, in, in drizzles at that moment. I had spent so much of my, my adult life in higher education that I always felt sort of protected by the prevailing winds. And two months into my layoff, I told my roommate, I'm going to organize until something better comes along. I was 50. I have the highest degree in the land. I'm in the land of opportunity, but I'm not finding a job. And I always worked from the time I was 15. So I told Ronnie, I'm going to organize until something better comes along. And that was 13 years ago and nothing better has come along. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started. So, so to, so in that first year, a couple of things happened and um, I've got to eat. So I'm hustling clients. I'm doing my thing. I've, I've now become an entrepreneur and I'm in, I'm working with clients and this is a very new experience for me. And I had a client, uh, one of my first clients, we, she brought me in for paper clutter and we worked on piles of paper and we made an appointment for the following week. And I said, okay, before I come back, why don't you work on this pile right here? She says, great. And I go back the next week. And not only was that pile not worked on, but there were other piles kind of around the house. And, and I, I have one of my, my dad is somebody who taught me this. Do not label, judge, or resent yourself or others. Just do not label, judge, or resent. I like that. Into this situation where the pile wasn't gone through. There were more piles. And so without labeling, judging, or resenting, I thought, I wonder why this happened. I would have dealt with it. I would have done what my organizer told me. But she didn't. And I thought it was interesting. And within a few days, I'm working with another client. And she um, hired me to help her go through all the memorabilia, all the things from when her mom passed. And, and she was having a hard time letting go. So I'm in her space and she holds up, let's say she held up this box opener. And she says to me, this was my mother's, should I let it go? And again, I was just so curious. She had just met me and she's asking me permission to let go of something that, that didn't have, I didn't see a reference to her mom. Thought it was interesting. I didn't label or judge it. But what I did is I found um, coursework and training through the Institute for Challenging Disorganization. Hmm. And ICD is where mental health professionals meet professional organizers. So I tell you this story because I learned all about brain based conditions that hamper productivity, clarity. Um, checking off a to-do list, uh, one's relationship with time. And here's what I've learned. In order, <laughs> this is probably why you thought I had ADHD because I was late to our our, our <laughs> In order, uh, see, this is such a foreign sentence to me because I'm always on time. In order for us to show up on time, in order for us to mark off our to-do list, in order for us to 
start and complete what we call laundry, right? It's not just laundry. It's sort, wash, dry, fold, put away. In order to complete these tasks, we need to have a functioning executive function. And the executive function part of our brain, the gray matter, it's the prefrontal cortex, and therein resides all of these six functions that allow us to get through our day successfully. My executive function is always firing on all pistons except for this morning. And um, people who need people like me in their lives, professional organizers, they've got a compromised executive function. They tend to be led by the amygdala, the lizard brain, the, the earlier brain. I think of the early brain, I think of a cave woman. She's standing there at the opening of the cave. And if she sees a cool body of water, she may not have the words to describe cool body of water because language is definitely an executive function part. That part of her brain isn't even developed yet. But what she sees is something that's very soothing and satisfying. So the, the, the lizard brain, the amygdala, is, is um, the fight or flight brain. She's, oh, oh yes, this is lovely. I'm just going to go, I'm going to give myself over to it. If she saw a Tyrannosaurus Rex, she would also respond in an emotional way. So our amygdala, the lizard brain, um, if that's dominant, if your executive function is dysfunctional because of ADHD, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, cancer, COVID, major life transitions can get you off your game in terms of your executive function. So all that to say is that as I came to understand these components of our brain in relationship to doing things on task, on time, it was good information for me to work with clients. Now, I'm working with clients. I've got this body of knowledge about the brain, and I'm hearing my female clients call me in for their clutter. And what they do is they turn the problem of clutter into a reflection on who they are. Because they're raised to be wives and mothers, and they're raised to notice everything, and they're raised to take on what we call women's work. And 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 then you know, why is it called women's work? You don't need a vagina. I mean, I <laughs> I just don't get it. The only time we need a particular body part to do the work of household management or emotional labor, the only body part you need um, at certain points um, you, is breastfeeding and pushing out a baby. Other than that, the work doesn't require a female. And yet, when we say the term men's work, I would say it would be rare if what conjures up has anything to do with the household. You hear men's work, and I think this is universal. It is not, it is not to the culture of the United States. You hear the term men's work, and you hear the term women's work. And they are two completely different sets of work. And yet, women are working in every single area of human life outside the home. So we've got these cultural constructions of 
what constitutes work. And we continue to raise boys into men and girls into women to think of the work in ways that we've been thinking of the work since since the dawn of time. Yeah. And yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm I'm thank you for sharing your story. And it strikes me that it's not only work, it's kind of it's a definition of who we are as men and women that also as a component of it is what we're supposed to be doing. So I, that socialization process is incredibly powerful in my mind. I, in fact, I think it's so powerful that it's difficult to get any bit of space or air between the mask that we wear of who we are as man or woman and who I am as John, an individual. And, and I think it's, it becomes the water we swim in, the air we breathe, and we don't even realize it's there. Right. Right. I, I, I agree a hundred percent. And, um, go ahead. So tell me about the current split between men and women. Cause this, uh, pardon me, tell me about the current split between men and women doing household chores kind of on average. Cause the stats I've seen on that going back 20, 30, 50 years to even present time, it's getting better, but it's still a, a remarkable difference. Yeah, I don't have the stats in front of me. What I do okay. know, um, I do know that the statistics are not statistically relevant yet because women continue to carry the lion's share of the work. So I often get frustrated when I hear it's getting better because it's like, why are we still even saying that? This is not a new issue. There was a book published in 1964, Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Mm -hmm. And in The Feminine Mystique, she interviewed 300 of her Wesleyan classmates saying, what are you doing now? You know, how's life now? 10 years after graduation. And these were women in the 1950s. You know, they had graduated with undergraduate degrees uh, toward the late 1950s. They had earned from one of the best liberal arts college in the country. They had earned legitimate degrees. Yeah. What are you doing now? And her the responses that she got was what is what she labeled the problem with no name, because all of these Mm -hmm. women answered the survey. She thought she was going to get, oh, and I'm president of my PTA. And, you know, she she got responses where women were saying, I I don't know why I got a degree. I don't use it. I'm I'm tired of making brownies and wiping snotty noses. I, I, I can't believe how much work is involved. So Betty Friedan coins the problem with no name in 1964. I read a household technology handbook from 1915. In 1915, I was introduced to Christina Frederick. And Christina Frederick tells this story about um, being at home in New York City. And she's in the parlor cutting a dress pattern. And she hears her husband and his associate talking about these new time motion studies, assembly line work. And she was very curious about that. And so she walked over and she listened to the gentleman talking. And and she said, you know, I bet you're going to tell me that I can run a home much more efficiently 
using time motion studies? And he says, yes, you can. She goes, but let me tell you this. In the space of one hour, I'm stirring porridge, cutting a dress pattern, uh, checking off a list, uh, bathing the baby. And then I hear someone peeling carrots. And then I hear one of the kids cry and I have to put down the carrot. She goes, all of these tasks can happen within an hour and each one of them require different time and motion. So how do you streamline that? And the reason why she was so curious about streamlining it is because Christina in 1915 was so frustrated by not being able to spend time with her gal pals. Book clubs, sewing clubs, you know, bicycle clubs, all were part of her past because all she was doing was maintaining the function of the household. So when I hear that things are getting better, it's not as if the problem hasn't been named and claimed and looked upon for a hundred years. So again, I hear things getting better. And it's like, and you know, there's a there's a great um, one of the authors that I read from my research is Eve Rodsky. And I'm going to quote her. I just gave a presentation on my book uh, an hour or so before we met. And she said, um, she said, there is a new reckoning coming, a new feminism that includes men participating in household labor, childcare, and in the caring economy, too long the sole domain of women. Ultimately, she says, we need to invite men into their full power in the home so that we can unleash women into their full power in the world. <clears throat> where I find equity in households where two adults are present um, are primarily happening in same-sex households. That's where we do show statistical relevance because when two women or two men begin their journey together, they have to talk about everything that's going on in the house because there's no gender division of labor. The work isn't divided by how you were raised per se. So they have to talk about everything and they have to describe and discuss what are going to be the important tasks, who's going to do them. And if neither one of us want to do them, do we outsource or do we give it up? But hetero couples are just not having those kinds of conversations. They may start out that way. But because this concept of emotional labor and the work of the household and household management is a constantly and chronically evolving thing, then the conversations have to happen over the entire length of the relationship and not, not one and done. Because yeah, I agree. I think it's an evolving, ongoing conversation. And, and let's get to the difference real quickly between physical labor and emotional labor, because that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on. And, and just to make male listeners aware of the difference. Okay. So this is how I define emotional labor. It's the invisible unnoticed, unwaged, unwritten, undervalued work done in the home and in the paid workplace predominantly by women. And it's thinking about what's coming up next, about what needs to happen, how to look into the future, to anticipate, 
birthdays, family meals, holiday dinners? Do we have enough toilet paper? How come there's no ketchup? Now, all of these tasks, each one of them, super easy to do, but they're also supremely important to the functioning of a well-ordered home and a family happiness. <laughs> we have conversations with our clients that are called the ketchup wars. Why is it my responsibility to know there's no ketchup? So the tasks in and of themselves are simple, but the, the weight of them are, are like part of the clothing that a woman would wear. The tasks fall on her shoulders like a big hefty set of shoulder pads. The work, the kin work, kin work um, is a term that, that um, became um, uh, a sociologist, Michaela de Leonardo, coined kin work to describe the multiple ways in which we, in which women bring the family together. And, 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 and even in divorce, how do you negotiate these new spaces with, with <clears throat> your former spouse's new um, um, partner? That's all the work of emotional labor. How do we, <laughs> I think of all the emotional labor that happened around all the holiday dinners because of COVID and politics. And, and who, is, who is trying to make nice? Who is trying to um, uh, keep the weight, keep the weight, the, the, the opprobrium of emotional labor, uh, keep it light, right? So emotional labor is the invisible work. It's the planning, the processing. It's, it's, it's noticing. Noticing is a huge skill. Well, it, it makes me think of awareness, right? That there's oh, an awareness yeah. of what needs to be done. And, and this was kind of the big aha for me that there is this cognitive load, a cognitive and emotional load of this emotional and mental labor that takes place. And I, I liken it to you know, the Chiron that, that runs at the bottom of CNN right, that has right. the running titles yeah. or the ticker tape. I, I think it, it's like that that's constantly going through the mind of women. But I don't think it's just one line or one ticker tape. I think it's two, three, yeah, yeah. four, like there's multiple chirons that are constantly going through their heads and where they're thinking, oh shit, I got to get this done. Oh, I need to get that done. And then what happens, I realized is we men, even if I like, I can try and be a supportive spouse or partner and say to my fiance, hey, honey, how can I help you? How can I support you? What can I do next? What, what do you need my help with? But just the fact that I have to ask. Thank you. Is like, I'm still Part not holding someone. the mental or emotional labor. She's oh. holding all these mental tasks or to-do okay. lists in her head. I'm just saying, which one of these can I help you tick off? Right. And, and, and that's <clears throat> Very good observation that most people that I speak with, most males that I speak with aren't, aren't coming to yet. But when you said at the top of our conversation that she just has a better memory. Mm -hmm. Well, that part's true. I don't know how but it factors what I'm into saying this. But... Is, of course, she has to because she has to remember what she's going to need help with. So. Yeah. It's it's really really layered there. Well, and, and one of the things that that amazes me about her is like I can watch her track my schedule, her schedule, the schedule of her two daughters, the schedule of my daughter a little bit less so, 
but she knows everything that we're doing on a day-to-day basis. And I'm like, geez, like I can barely remember what I'm doing on a given but day. But if that was your job? Well, and if that's how I was raised and if that's how I was socialized. Yeah. I mean, right. it's, it's fascinating to me. Right. Because if, if the female doesn't do it, then what happens? I mean, it feels like the wheels fall off the family in the household. Right. And so this is a really, so it's, it, this is a great conversation for me. It's a fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it is, it's, and, and I don't have any solutions. I'm just, I just feel like I'm beginning. This is a new awareness for me mm-hmm. on, on the whole emotional and cognitive uh, load and labor that women have to do. Like I knew about the physical labor. I've, I mean, my mom was kind of, I think of her as a, a feminist and I grew up in a feminist household. Um, and so I was aware of much of it, but this was a new one for me, as I said, just about six months ago. So, gosh. And, and here's, here's, where, here's, where, here's where I think this is really important too for us men to know is I, I think, you know, we, we are socialized to fix it, right? We, we're shitty at validating. We're not very good at listening because then we get anxious inside because our partner is upset or sad or anxious or whatever, and then we try and fix it. But in trying to fix it, which is usually our go-to strategy, one of the things we do, which I don't think helps, and I want your feedback on this, is we'll tell women, you know, our our spouse or fiance, just just relax or or oh just God. let it go or or just take care of yourself, focus on self-care. And I think the intentions are quite good there. But what happens when we say that? Um, What's the internal response? That you're you're really not hearing what's wrong. That. Tell me I, more. Before I forget, I want to introduce you to, um, have you interviewed Matthew Frey yet? No. Oh my gosh. Matthew Frey, F-R-A-Y, is this, is this guy in, in Ohio who um, is a blogger. He's been blogging for many years. And at one point he got a divorce and he blogged for like two years about that she left him because he left the cup on the countertop. And he was just so pissed off about it until he had his own aha moment. And now he's got a book coming out this year. He works with men to help keep them from getting divorced. And so there's a component in his work. And I got to interview him for my book. And he he says that um, similar to what you just mentioned, and I, and I wish I had his quote in front of me, but it's it's this: uh, when your when your partner, when your significant other is coming to you with a problem, men have one of three responses. Uh, one is, um, "Oh, you shouldn't feel that way. That's not what happened," or. Hey, calm down. It's not that big of a deal. Or, well, I did it this way because. So gaslighting, minimizing, or rationalizing. Pretty much. And uh, in a nutshell. And he says, these are not moves by asshole guys. These are, these are lines from guys who are loving, kind partners. But to your point, John. 
not able to validate the feeling, feeling attacked and defensive. And so what what I see happen in in these relationships is and and pardon me Regina if I can interrupt there I agree with him I, those are I would say those are lines by well-meaning well-intentioned men to try their best the best they know how to support their partner. Right. And we just we haven't been socialized to learn any way I mean we just I would say we're mocked and humiliated for dipping our toe in the water of leaning into relationship, leaning into relationship skills, leaning into communication skills, leaning into emotional awareness and emotional intelligence. And that's one of the big problems that I see. It is. So, yes. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) There's so much I could say. Uh, so I do a lot of networking. I, I have a, my, my organizing business. I grow it through networking. I get clients through networking. And I um, several things happened at the beginning of COVID. And one was I was watching, I was waiting and watching to see if the invisible work of the household was now going to become visible because corporate America landed in the bathrooms, the kitchens, the dining rooms, and the dens mm. of, of the American household. That didn't happen. It didn't become visible. And we see this this huge exit of women from the paid workplace. They called it a she session. Okay. Um, I'm in these network meetings and I'm talking to the guys, you know, we're having meetings and discussion and I'm seeing life happen, right? I'm seeing a dog. I'm seeing a kid. I'm like, how's it going in there? You know, the lockdown, this was like, April, May, and June of last year, we're still major lockdowns. So how's it going in there? And I can't tell you how many guys said this to me. Well, luckily, my wife's not working. And I said, wow, is she watching Ellen reruns and eating bonbons? I'm like, what's going on there that she's not working? Cool. And he's going, and they all would say, no, 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 she's working. And so what I hear is, There's not even a sense of what that value is. So imagine if the work was visible and valuable, I think a lot more equity would be happening in the household. Yeah, I would add to that. Pardon me for interrupting. I I think that if you could put a dollar amount on it, even like a dollar per hour, that might help people to understand the worth of what's happening in the background also. I'm just trying to think of how to make it make sense to men. Well, yes. Um, And in the book, I've got, uh, I have an app. I, I, I came across an app called Tend, the Tend app. And you can plug in that you just vacuumed and what that would cost. Oh, yeah. There's so many statistics out there that show if every single homemaker walked off the job that day, how would that economy collapse? In Norway in the 90s or early 2000s, Norwegian women took the day off. No sex, no work, no cooking. No dressing children. No sex. No sex. No <laughs> Sorry. No you heard me. And um, <laughs> it was a disaster. The country went into a tailspin. So again, the work, the because the work is so invisible, I guess we don't value the invisible. I don't, I. 
Well, I, I think like most things that I deal with in my line of work, if it's vague and abstract and unseen, we really struggle with that because we're thinking at a concrete level most times. Mm-hmm. We're not very good at dealing with abstract, unseen, and vague and ambiguous. Okay, we'll do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying as fast as I can. <laughs> so let me ask you this. How, how can women go about letting go of the ticker tape? Because I think there's you know at least two sides to this in the sense of I think men can be more supportive and which I want to get to as well. But then I think part of it is women doing the own, their own work of doing exercises or anything that they can do to begin to let go of this and maybe hand off some of it. Like one of the things I've seen is, you know, okay, honey, you take care of all the kids sports stuff, you know, getting them to practice, picking them up, taking them, getting them equipment, getting them signed up, all take care of, I don't know, the kitchen, for example, like you can make broad separation like that. Do you have any ideas? Sure. Um, so there is a concept called radical delegation. Hmm. Traditional delegating is when we assign tasks to whoever is best at it. That's what delegating is, pretty much. In the paid workforce, we tend to delegate toward who's, you know, we hire people because of what they're good at. So traditional delegating is is dividing roles and tasks based on who's good at it. Well, hands down, women are better at all of it because that's how they're raised and socialized. Mm -hmm. Who's better at it? Does that promote equity? Hell no. Radical delegating is assigning tasks based on what has to be done versus who's best at it. So you have your list of tasks. Who's going to completely own it? And and any form of delegating requires a great deal of trust that once it's delegated, it's off your mind. You don't have to even send a reminder. One of the women in the focus group said that she and her spouse decided he was going to be responsible for the piano lessons. Um, picking up and dropping off and paying the teacher. And it was killing her to not to, she, it was, it, it took everything in her to hold back to ask the teacher if she had been paid yet. Because that had been her job. And so right. when you're delegating, and especially radical delegating, because if you're not good at it, but it has to get done, you just have to trust it'll be good enough. You got to come to good enough. And and I think that's a really good point. I, I like the phrase settle for good enough. I mean, yeah. like for instance, my fiance and I, um, she would get, she has a little OCD streak to her and she likes the dishwasher, you know, organized just so with the dirty dishes. And me and her girls were like, well, you know, look, we're happy to help clean up dinner. And for that to work, you're going to have to let go of the need to perfectly organize the dishwasher no, after we've I put disagree. everything in it. If you're helping, you're doing it the way she needs to do it. If the task is delegated, then you do it the way you want and she steps back. So again, that's what I'm saying. But I'm saying, but, I, but that's, I, I think that's both parts, right? It's, it's us trying to help out and take some of the load off her. And I think her work is letting go of the perfect 
assembly of the dirty dishes in the dishwasher. This may be semantics. Okay. Hear me out. I would I would respond differently if you said we are willing to take it on. Ah, uh, gotcha. Instead of help her out. Yes. Because if you're helping her, it's still her job. And if it's her job, she wants it loaded this way. Okay. So let me, let me, I got you. I totally get you. So how does it make you feel when you hear fathers talking about babysitting their own children? I, I, I think it's ridiculous and reprehensible. <laughs> here's, here's a really interesting story. So I told you the story about the guys telling me my wife's not working, right? Oh, luckily she's not working. Well, around the same time, I, I'm asking these guys, how's it going at home? My wife's not working. I had posted on Facebook to my pals because I'm working on my book. Uh, if there was one task that you could delegate at home right now, what would it be? And one of my friends, Jennifer, wrote and she said, well, luckily, my husband is responsible for all the non-financial tasks of our household. And I wrote, Jen, are that's you a lot. I said, are you? <laughs> that's what housework is. That's what women's work is. That's yeah. women's work. A lot. And I said, Jennifer, are you the primary wage earner? And she said, yes. And I said, wow, that's a good bit of heavy emotional lifting. You gave him a job title and a job description. Because most husbands would say, my wife's not working. You said he manages all the non-financial tasks of the household. And the reason why she shaped it in those terms was because of his anxiety and emasculation being with, at the park with his children. And isn't that nice? You're watching your kids. Are you babysitting today? Is this, you know, they, they saw his work as, as husband, as, a, you know, well, <laughs> that's really nice of you to take them to the park. Moms don't get that. Yeah. So again, it's how it's because she knows the value of the non-financial work of the household. She was able to give it that job description. When, and I, there's a point in there that I want to highlight, and that's the emasculation of men. And I don't think they need anyone to say anything to them. I Because I've stayed home and watched my children when I was in graduate school. And I felt it. And I was, you know, probably, I don't know, late 20s. And it's interesting. Again, it goes back to socialization. That be, how we're socialized results in these thoughts and feelings that we have, like, I don't know. Oh, this isn't men's work. Like we're criticizing ourselves. And, and I think that's part of the internal struggle that men face because yeah. I really, and, and I, I want to applaud the men that are stay at home dads that are doing the lion's share or 50, 50 of chores at home. And, and I know that that can get pushback and yet I want to encourage them and more men to do that. Yeah, I mean, just I'm gonna it's it it's it's worth repeating Eve Rodsky saying ultimately we need to invite men into their full power in the home. Because yeah, and I think of this as full spectrum masculinity. 
It's full spectrum humanity. Fair enough. Spectrum. Who are we? You know, the work of emotional labor, even though there's so much of it, it's it's for the betterment of of humanity. As a people, we would lose out so much if we didn't have emotional labor. We need it. We love getting birthday cards. We love planning family vacations. I mean, all of that is the emotional labor part of it, doing things so that the people around you can be happy and and comforted and belonging, you know, all of those things. But does it really all need to be on the shoulders of one person? So the book that I just published, there's a section in it called The Emotional Labor Life Cycle. And it's it's for any family, you know, if two adults, it's when you start out a new relationship, who's going to be responsible for remembering when the first kiss happened? The first date. Because that kind of memory, the working memory, is going to become part of the family story. Mm-hmm. So the emotional labor life cycle has um, a whole lot of stuff coming up in your life for the remain for the your entire life. So I encourage couples to look at it and go, where are we at in the life cycle? If we are planning to have children, so we we're, we just started our relationship. We've been together for a couple of years. We're now starting to establish some kin ties. We're thinking about how we're going to do holidays with our family members. All of that is emotional labor. And now we're going to start a family and starting a family. Who's going to be responsible for reading all the baby books? Are both going to read it so both have that same body of knowledge? Or is she going to do it and pass along what she thinks is important? You know, so having these conversations all throughout the life. And so when you're in your 50s, when a couple is in their 50s and their parents are aging in the emotional labor life cycle, who is now, are you going to do your parents and I'm going to do my parents? How do you preempt the actual work? and anticipate what's coming up. You know, and and the other thing that kind of crosses my mind, and I'm not quite sure how to phrase this, but I mean, obviously we've been, we've come up in a patriarchy and the patriarchy, I think, has its own agenda in some way, although there's no one person behind it. I think. (laughs) Unless you believe in the Illuminati. Um, but I think um, it, it strikes me that that this is a difficult issue to shift or make progress on, partly because I it's my suspicion that many men conveniently don't care because to not care and ignore the issue means I don't have to do that much around the house. I was with a couple a married couple, a straight married couple, a couple of few years ago. And she had called me in just overwhelmed with what was going on at home. Just the mess, clutter. And they have a small, they had like an eight or nine month old baby. And I went over to the house and I'm sitting on the couch with the three of them, with the, with the, with the couple. So there's three of us on the couch. And I pointed over my shoulder to the overflowing dining room table cords and pacifiers and laptops and cracker packages, you know, everything. 
I know if anybody's listening to your podcast, like, oh, it looks like my dining room table. So yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel such shame right now. <laughs> you actually don't, but mo- women feel shame about it because that they see the yeah. clutter as a reflection of who they are. Yep. Not how their brain is wired. So I'm looking at this pile of mess and I say to her, how does that make you feel? What do you see here? She had this list of shame, despair, frustration, anxiety. I feel like a bad mom. I mean, it was just, I looked at him. I said, how does that make you feel? What do you think he said? It doesn't bother me. I was going to say nothing. Yeah. He said, it doesn't bother me. And I looked at him. I said, what kind of marriage is that then? What is it that she is giving you so much information about her pain? And the first words out of your mouth of it doesn't bother me instead of Regina, what can we do to ameliorate her pain? No, what he says to me is, hey, (laughs) I wake up with the baby every night so she can get her beauty rest. Beauty rest. So now she's beautiful for him. And I looked at him and I said, and what do you do the other 90% of the time? So I think that there's something to what you said, that there's an investment in the status quo, because who wants to clean an effing toilet? Well, I actually think cleaning toilets is a good way for everyone to get a little humility. Uh, I'm with Gandhi on that. Um, And I know Gandhi had his own misogynistic issues, but, you know, um, (laughs) what? He did. Aristotle, St. Paul, Thomas Jefferson. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Many, many, many men have written many, many, many things about how women ought to comport themselves. And and because women did not have access to the written word or education and they had to use pseudonyms, I think, wow, what if many, many, many women talked about how many, many, many men ought to act? Wow, no more war. How do you like it? How do you like it? Yeah. Uh, wow, yeah, this, there's a lot here. But I, I mean, I in your example, I was thinking that it, it feels to me like there's a lack of empathy on his part, which, you know, cause if, if you've got empathy in that point, at that point, in that example, you're picking up on your wife's suffering and you, because of the em- empathy, you want to alleviate her suffering to some degree. And so you want to help at some level instead of just like, eh, no big deal. Yeah, it's true. I don't know. I don't get it. I, I, I do but, a lot of, companies. I mean, I, it's, I can trace the lack of empathy back to the fact that we men are socialized to shut off two thirds of the emotional spectrum growing up. It's, you know, we get these, the messages of don't be feminine, don't be female. And on the other hand, don't be gay. And, and I, you know, I've talked about this before, but what happens then is we associate emotions with those. So if you show too much sadness or anxiety or fear, it's don't be a bitch, don't be a pussy, don't be a little girl. If you show too much joy, love, romanticism, excitement, it's don't be gay, don't be a fag, forgive the slurs, people. But we, every time we get that, we jump back into the man box. And then we're left with what I would argue are three emotions that we can publicly display without fear of humiliation, which are lust, stress, and the big one, anger. So most of our emotions get channeled through that anger lens, irritability, frustration, rage, whatever it is. And it cuts us off from basic relational emotions like empathy. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, big boys don't cry. I, 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 I can't yeah. imagine how debilitating that is. Um, and so, I, I honestly, I have compassion for both sides. I, I mean, I, I really want to help. I want to support both sides in their evolution and their development. I just happen to be male, so I've just focused more on men yeah. than than women because I don't have a vagina yet. <laughs> That's a whole surgery <laughs> or a series of them. Yeah, I think you would really love a conversation with Matthew Frey, F R A Y. He's just um, he's such a delight, and he tells the story about. Uh, you know, how, how to begin to help men to notice. So he's now has a new partner and they have, they're having a nice life. And what he's noticed about living with her is that on Thursdays, uh, on Thursdays, she always does these particular tasks when it comes to her home base job. And on a particular Thursday, she said in the morning, wow, I'm going to have to go out and meet a client today at noon. And because he's tuned in to what's going on with her days, he said, oh, would you like me to do X for you then? Let me take on, let me do X for you. Because he knows that when she gets back, she would have to do that. So preemptively, just let me do that. So he's in tune. He didn't ask, is there anything you'd like me to do while you're gone? He knows what needs to be done because he noticed what she's doing. Yeah, I, and I, I think you're exactly on point. I think a big part of this is awareness. And I think awareness can be external and internal. Yeah. And it's interesting. It, it makes me think of uh, Tasha Yurik's uh, research on self-awareness in which she found that a full 95% of us think that we are highly self-aware. And in fact, her research finds it's about 12%, right. which that's right. a pretty big gap. Yeah, it is. It really is. And and I think we have a lot of blind spots. I, I think we have very little awareness about why we do what we do, what we think, what we feel. And men, I think, are worse at it than women. And it, and it's and again, it's how one is socialized. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I like the socialization piece because one of the arguments that I make is it's not our fault. It's not men's fault that we've come out this way. Yet it is our responsibility to evolve beyond that man box. Sure. And once the light bulb goes off, don't just let it dim without disrupting that narrative. I gave a talk to a, a group of mixed, a mixed audience, women and men, and uh one of the guys spoke up and he says, oh, you know, I have a whole new appreciation for what my wife does. And she spent um, a long weekend with her gal pals in Texas. And the weekend was all on him with the kids and everything. And the Sunday afternoon came along. He couldn't even watch football because he had to get the house straightened up for the cleaning person that was coming on Monday. And and. I asked him, I said, with this new awareness, what have you done differently? As no, I, I, I just, it's like, it blew my mind. <laughs> like, so once an awareness happens, 
you know, again, it's usually the women that are starting these conversations. Yeah. You know, they're the ones responsible for tracking how's the relationship going. Do you think we need to talk more? I mean, it's not often men that are asking those questions. So I I don't. Um, I want my book to be accessible to everybody. And I, I don't talk necessarily about husbands. I talk about the two adults in the household. Hmm. And when I think that's one of the big challenges um, is how do we get into the minds of men in a way that they're not going to get defensive. They're not going to react in anger. They're not going to rationalize. And that's a challenge. Sure. There's a, there's a, um, a quick and dirty exercise that I encourage the two adults to do. And uh, so once they hear your podcast, once they hear this session, this episode, uh, and they're getting a sense, your audience has a sense of what is emotional labor. That's a lot of work. We've established that. It's planning and price, all of that. Um, have a conversation with your spouse about it. This is what I heard today. And then go into separate rooms and write down everything you do. Whatever you do to contribute to the management of the household. No filters, just write it down. Rain gutters and dusting the tops of the fan. Whatever you do, write it down. And then just compare lists. It's a really not threatening, not in your face. Do not label, judge, or resent who's doing what. But just look at the written word and see where you can start disrupting that narrative. Most men that have done this exercise come back to me going, holy cow, I had no idea she was doing so much. So it is, it does create an awareness. And the next step would be to open up the dialogue. Because prior to this looking at what's being done, the dialogue usually involved arguing or resignation fed upness. <laughs> and this is, I think, a very non-threatening. These are the facts, ma'am. You know, we operate well, on tangible. And and I like the idea of to the extent that we can come at emotionally charged topics like this with curiosity, yes. open mind, non-judgmentalness, I, I think we're going to be way better off as opposed to getting triggered. And, you know, I imagine in these cases, it's the man getting triggered, like, well, I do a lot around the house or I, you know, I work for a living and, you know, there's a lot of rationalizations and it's not about that. It's, it's not saying that you're not doing enough. Right. It's just, how can we make the division of labor more equitable? Right. And there's a really interesting component to this. When you look at emotional labor on households of color, So we have come to understand in in the United States, um, we we have evolved in our understanding about systemic racism in this country. And I have um, a ton of working knowledge. I'm deeply read on the topic of race, racism, immigration, gender. labor in the U.S. And um, 
when, uh oh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, so I got it. So when, if you are a black male and you leave your front door every day as a black male and you are going into the executive suite at your company, you're, you're in the C-suite, it doesn't matter what you do for a living. From the time you leave your front door to the time you go back through your front door, you are going to experience untold amounts of subtle and not so subtle aggressions towards you as a black man. We live in that, that's, that's our culture, that's our society, micro, macro aggressions. And, and in some respects, that can really beat you down. I'm reminded when I when I think of this, I'm reminded of the late 1950s when Dr. Martin Luther King is giving speeches to labor organizations and others. And you see the you see black males and females protesting and the guys are wearing suits and hats and ties and they have a can get really emotional. They have a big sign on their chest that say, I am a man. So the emasculinization, the emasculation of black males in our culture is palpable. Mm -hmm. So your husband is living that day. He comes through the front door. How do you have that conversation? And you didn't do the laundry again. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, it's it's. How do you uplift and elevate out of the morass of systemic racism, but also create an equitable household at home? And it's a it's a fine line. I well, yeah, and, and one of the things that strikes me here is we're talking about generational progression too, um, in many ways, in terms of parenting, in terms of fatherhood, in terms of motherhood, in terms of how we look at division of labor of household chores whether it's the emotional, physical, or mental labor. And that's why I say I do think in some regards it's improving, or at least I like to think that it's improving. And um, yeah, I guess that's my perception. Yeah. It's, it's when I'm queen of the universe, everything's going to be different. Um, but you know, I got a ways to go. <laughs> well, listen, Regina, I'm, I'm aware of time. And so we got to wrap up, but let me ask you this. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Nothing's coming to mind. I, I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you. I, I appreciate yours. I I'm, I'm, uh, because you're you're grappling with this as a person who is progressive in their thinking, and it's still a challenge. Uh, yeah, and I don't. There's a lot of answers I don't have, and some of the questions I'm just learning. Yeah, I'd be curious if you and your um, partner read the book. It would be. I would be interested to hear how what came out. Well, so she's a therapist, and she deals with women. And, and so, yeah, it would be very interesting. Yeah. And so tell me, tell the listeners where they can get a hold of you, what the website is, email, anything you want to share. So the book is called Emotional Labor, Why a Woman's Work is Never Done and What to Do About It. You can find it on Amazon. And uh, 
Pretty soon, we're going to have the reginalark.com website, but that's not ready yet. But you can direct your listeners to aclearpath.com. And that's my, uh, there's a lot about the work that I do. In, um, yeah. Pardon me, is that .com or .net? It's both. Oh, okay. I just want to make sure because I had a different one on my notes here. Um, All right. Well, Regina, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I think it's a really important topic and I, I think that more men need to be aware of it. I appreciate you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining me. And that's it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. If you love this, please feel free to like, rate, review, and share. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 